Pastor Brian. Um, so I wish every day were 25 hours. I know I'm a scientist. That doesn't, it's not possible, but I, I liked it. It was nice today. So faith and science, or faith or science, um, do you want faith-based solutions or do you follow the science? We've been seeing faith and science entering into the social um, milieu, the culture wars uh, lately, and there's a notion floating around that you have to choose between those two, between your Christian faith uh, and science, that they're inconsistent with each other. This is called the conflict thesis or the warfare model. It's been around for a long time. Um, I'm going to tease this apart today a little bit, and my punchline will be, of course, that we can and should keep both faith and science. Um, but, you know, I want to start by rubbing something in um, to, uh, to Pastor Brian. Um, so I'm going to tell one of the stories from that concert that he wasn't able to go to. Um, uh, yeah, so it was a sort of memoir of the lead singer of uh, U2. Um, and he told us a story from a time early in their career when they were starting to get big and The Edge, who was the, is the guitarist for the band and also lent them their signature uh, guitar sound, uh, approached the rest of the band just as they were starting to get big and he was conflicted. He said their music was going to get in the way of their Christian faith and that he would not have that. So he said, are we serving Jesus or Joey Ramone? Or you could say El Shaddai or Elvis. And essentially he said, I'm out of here. Um, if it's between faith and fame, I'm choosing uh, faith. And he nearly left the band. But they, in the end, they did sort of get together, the four of them. They prayed about it. They, they uh, hashed it out. And finally, they decided they could have their Jesus in their rock and roll too. <laughs> um, and, and, and Bono promised that they would never allow their um, music or fame to compromise their faith. And of course, they exploded, and the song I Will Follow, the first song on their first album, went up the charts right then. So. But, so just as they finally agreed that they could have their faith in music too, I would say that likewise we can have our faith in science too, even though uh, we need to be careful about it, and there are reasons why people like The Edge would be edgy about it or worried about it. You know, there's a battle going on out there. Um, for instance, Oxford University has a, an endowed chair uh, dedicated to the public understanding of science. So the person who holds that position has a responsibility to interpret science uh, for the people. Now, the person who took that chair, who was given that prestigious position when it was created in 1995, is Richard Dawkins, a biologist. And his main goal ever since taking that position was to argue that we ought to abandon faith in God in preference to science. He's notorious for ridiculing uh, Christians and, and Christian faith. Now, it's not like Oxford is an inherently atheistic place. It was created a thousand years ago by Christian monks, and it has hosted uh, many of the greatest Christian thinkers of the last millennium. It produced the author of what a lot of societies and polls and magazines have uh, voted the greatest Christian work of the 20th century, which is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and the greatest fantasy novel ever written, also by a devout Christian, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. 
But while those very works were being published in the mid-1950s, Richard Dawkins was at school reading something else, uh, Why I Am Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. So, and you'll hear a lot of other voices around like his too. Some of the names are Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Michael Shermer, Jerry Coyne, Lawrence Krauss. All of these people claim to represent science in some way and are very vocal about seeing faith as outmoded, silly, and even dangerous. But on the other hand, there are many of the great scientists in history, perhaps most, were Christians. And many wrote a lot about their faith in addition to their science. Blaise Pascal, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, Antoine Lavoisier, Michael Faraday, James Clerk Maxwell, R.A. Fisher, Nowadays, the most important scientist or the most powerful scientist in the world is usually the person who runs the United States National Institutes of Health. And until recently, that person was Francis Collins, who is a com committed Bible-believing Christian who, with his team, had previously sequenced the human genome. Now, there's a reason why so many Christians in history, I mean, so many scientists in, Christ uh, in history have been Christian. There's a reason why modern science arose when and where it did, and why the early major figures were often Christians. Science, especially in terms of the explanation of the world around us, which we call pure science rather than applied to different particular problems, was essentially built on monotheistic foundations. When you have many gods or diverse spirits around, uh, controlling the world, you have no reason to think that the rules will be the same everywhere. But when you have one God, when, as Colossians 1.17 says, there is one creator before all things, and in him all things hold together, you now have a reason to expect a consistent universe, one that operates by the same laws at all times and all places, and one that you might even be able to figure out a bit about by examining it. So what happened then? Why is there this big hoopla today about uh, whether faith and science can coexist peacefully? And what are we as Christians supposed to think about this conflict and about science in general? So I, I have to step back first then and give a little bit about what science is in general and its place in the world. Now the hallmark of science is public testability. If you have an idea and you can draw a prediction out of it and go out and test it, and if anyone else can test it too, to see whether the prediction holds water, then it's scientific. In a way, this is as old as humanity itself. Um, think of carpentry, Jesus' profession. Um, how do you avoid splitting wood with your fasteners? Should you rip it along the grain or cross-cut it? Um, what, um, Trees are best to produce wood that would uh, be good for the structural features of a house as opposed to, say, a door. These are questions that need observation and sometimes experiment to figure out. You have a new idea, say that hornbeam would make a better baseball bat than ash, and then you just go out and test it. But modern science, beginning in the 16th century, just formalized those old rules, those old methods, added new ones, made them public and democratic, and started asking all sorts of questions that nobody had asked before, and invented new uh, techniques uh, to test them. 
we generally think of the scientific method as a cycle. Up at the top is the generation of a new hypothesis, or a modified one, and then you draw a prediction out of it, you go out there through observation or experiment, you collect data, and then you see what the results look like and how they match your prediction. Usually they don't, so you modify your hypothesis and the whole cycle goes around again. And by the way, that top part, the hypothesis generation, is a good place for imagination. A lot of people think that science is sort of dry and unimaginative, but it's the most imaginative scientists that come up with the best new ideas. Most of us go out and just take previous ideas and test them. Now, the testing doesn't have to be direct. Um, it can be indirect. Nobody's seen an electron, and, and until this year, nobody had, nobody had seen a black hole. But we had drawn enough predictions out and tested them from that we were uh, confident about their existence, and we have been for some, some time, decades. The testing does have to be public, though. No intensely personal experience or private arcane knowledge is, is part of science. You'll never be able to know scientifically whether your spouse loves you or, whether, or how it feels like to be a fish. Um, but this idea that um, you can go out at any time and place and test an idea, that's a special and powerful tool. And our use of that tool has reaped huge earthly rewards. We cure diseases, um, decode the DNA that lays the blueprint for all living things, and turn fossilized bits of um, ancient plants, coal, into electricity, and walk on the moon. Another one of the aspects of this public side of science is competition. There are two ways to make a name for yourself in, in science. You can find evidence for a new idea, sure, but another way to achieve success is to prove somebody else's idea wrong. And so for every new idea out there, there are 10 scientists trying to tear it down. And in fact, nearly every discovery is disproving somebody's pet idea. So progress in science depends on our ability to challenge uh, current ideas. Okay, science can't do everything. So let's, let's talk about a few limits or boundaries to science before we bring in the faith angle, and you'll see how this opens up the space for it. One limit is the biggest unanswered question of all time in science. How did the universe get here? Why is there anything at all? Science just provides nothing here. All the cosmological theories, like the cyclic universe, the multiverse string theory, none of these can answer the question. No scientist believes that the universe is just the sort of thing that can create itself. Um, nothing in the physical world has ever been shown or even thought to have come into being without a cause, without a causal act. In science, nothing comes from nothing. A second limit comes up when we use the term explanation. We say science explains things, but really at a fundamental level, we're only describing things regularities that we observe. So Einstein's E equals MC squared, for instance, um, describes how objects are essentially part energy and part mass, and as they move, more of the mass converts to energy. But we still don't know why the universe is like that. We've just noticed that it is. Same for gravity. Why do um, bodies pull each other uh, together? No clue, but we're happy to give you a bunch of uh, equations that describe it. 
In biology, likewise, we can describe everything about in a development from an acorn to an oak tree, but we can't truly explain how such a thing can happen. A dead cell, a dead cell looks exactly the same, even with our best microscopes, as a living cell, except nothing is moving. It's like a motor turning, switching off and on, you know, dead living. And there are, so what is then this mysterious thing called life then? And there are intermediate things that inhabit the gray area between the living and the non-living, like viruses, prions, DNA. Here's a third sort of limit. Even within science, the bigger the hypothesis, the more difficult it is to test, and the less certainty we have about it. Science is best at testing little things, and the job gets harder and harder as we focus on broader and more significant things. That's how we help our students decide what to study, for instance. When I entered graduate school in biology, I told my advisor I wanted to figure out what ravens were saying to each other. They have the most, among the most variable speech of any bird. So my advisor said, well, go ask Bern Heinrich in, in Maine. He knows more about ravens than anybody else in the world. So I asked him, and he said, forget it. Uh, that's not a question for a five-year PhD. That's a question for a lifetime of research. So if you want to study raven vocalizations for five years, just pick one of their 25 to 30 different kinds of sounds and just figure out what that means. But it'll take you the first two years just to get the ravens accustomed to you. Now, some, some questions, like whether there's a black hole at the center of every galaxy, has already taken a hundred research lifetimes, and we still haven't figured it out. And how to cure cancer has taken up tens of thousands of lifetimes of research and we still haven't figured it out. So the bigger the question, the harder the task, the less certainty we have. And this pattern is even more evident when we step back from science a bit. As the matters get even bigger, science can't say anything at all. Now, part of the reason for this is that science is blind to anything that doesn't fit its two central criteria. It can only deal with knowledge that is public and testable. It can only discover things that anyone could discover, regardless of their character, regardless of their wisdom, regardless of their spiritual gifts. So the, the problem with this sort of third limit is that the things that science can't handle are the most important questions of existence. The Ionian thinkers uh, nearly 3,000 years ago asked three questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? And they asked these three questions in the deepest sense, wondering what humans are for, why we exist, and what we're supposed to do with our lives. And science is no better able today to equip us with answers to those questions than it ever was. Um, sticking strictly to the, to the science, we would have to say that either we can't know what the answers to the questions are, or that they don't have any answers. So here's where, obviously, faith comes in. We Christians believe that the answers to those three questions, who am I, where, uh, why am I here, and where am I going, had already begun to be revealed in a promise that had been given just a thousand miles away from where those scientific philosophers were struggling. God had told Abraham, through you and your lineage, I will make my plan for humanity known, a blessing to all families of the earth. And then through Abraham's uh, priestly great-grandson, Levi, descended Moses. And through Moses, God gave people the Shema, the answer. It literally means 
here. You want to know what you're about? Listen for the answer. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. I am the one who brought you here, essentially, is what he was saying. I have a plan for you. I'm the potter. I asked you to come follow me and be the clay. You don't need to look any further for the deepest answers so you can lay your anxious mind to rest. And keep listening, because there's more knowledge to come for you who have faith. I'm going to send my son, a very person of the Godhead, to earth to model who you should be. So you can put your books and magnifying glasses away. They're not going to help you very much with those big questions. Uh, just listen. Now, no science is ever going to tell us that our purpose here is to love and glorify God and to love each other in imitation of Christ. It's not that science has a different answer to those questions of the Ionian thinkers. Science just says nothing at all about them. You can work at it all you like, and you won't get anywhere. The reason that is if you're using science for those questions, you're using a tool in a manner inconsistent with its labeling, as they say. Yeah. You're asking it to do something it was never supposed to do. You're putting science in the God place, and it simply doesn't work there. So if science has its uses in its place, but it can't say anything about the purpose of human existence, can't undermine the existence of God, can't tell us what's good or evil, why are some scientists using their positions as platforms to argue against faith? Well, it's not a fault of the science per se. It's the human, human beings that are leaping off uh, from the science in, in questionable directions. Uh, scientists are fallen humans and are subject to all the typical prideful failties that we all have. I'll mention a couple of things that can happen. One idea is called Maslow's hammer. It's the idea that if you have a hammer, you suddenly think everything is a nail. And so if you pick up a, a paperclip or a threaded bolt, you're liable to say, man, these things are terrible nails. But it might just be that your tool isn't good for absolutely everything. Uh, that's what a lot of scientists need to hear. Their expertise is good for some things, but not for everything. In fact, some scientists go one step further with this error. Uh, we could call this Maslow's hammer inverted. If you don't have a hammer, you decide there is no such thing as a nail. That's the scientific atheist position, essentially. They don't have the tools to understand God. Their tools are the only good ones, so God must not exist. Now, scientists have more susceptibility to this sort of issue than most people do. And the reason for this is that the love of money is not the only thing that can lead us astray, like 1 Timothy 6.10 says, or Matthew 19, 24, when Jesus says, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Paul goes further in 1 Timothy to explain why this happens. Quote, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money can take the place of God and thus make you feel that you don't need God anymore. Well, a lot of things can do this. Anything that gives you enough security and self-confidence can make you rely on yourself too much and then squeeze God out of the picture. And I think the power and the certainty that you get in scientific knowledge can lead a human being to say, you know what, this is all I really need. Um, many scientists have become so excited about the huge advancements that we've made in understanding the world that we decide that we no longer need 
God. There's a story about Napoleon coming up to the great um, mathematical physicist Laplace and asking him, where is God in all your you know, equations and explanations? And Laplace famously turned to Napoleon and said, I have no need of that hypothesis. Well, I do think Laplace, like everyone else on earth, has a need for that hypothesis. I do think we see a good clue to this and what can happen when we remove God from our lives. What often happens is the next thing down on the list of what is most important to us gets jammed up into that spot, right? So like Bob Dylan wrote, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you have to serve somebody. So politics can take the God place, uh, money, and sometimes science can too. And, and because it's not often done carefully or deliberately, it's often just an intellectual knee-jerk kind of move, it can become a sort of intellectual uh, or instinctual knee-jerk religion or a cult, which is the simplest sort of religion there is and the kind you're liable to fall into if you're not careful. The great Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson, he just died a few months ago, wrote in his memoirs that he got so excited by scientific explanations of the physical world that the physical world, quote, increasingly seemed to me to be the complete world. In essence, I still longed for grace, but rooted solidly on earth. So he spoke of entering the temple of science. And in his words again, science became the new light and the way. Often scientists aren't so explicit as, as Wilson was. They don't even necessarily realize what they're doing. They're often just sort of slipping and sliding down a primrose path that seems right. One thing we can say about those who seek to replace religion with science is that they're not really being good scientists when they do that. So keep in mind that science can only say things that are testable. So is atheism testable? Can public observation and experiment provide evidence that God doesn't exist? No, nobody actually thinks that it can. And so the scientific atheist position violates their very charter as scientists. The furthest a good scientist can go in rejecting God is to say, I don't know, and to leave it at that. So when scientists says that God doesn't exist, it's not a scientific statement. It should not be seen as one. It's more like a religious statement. It's a statement of faith that God doesn't exist. We should be careful when we allow our science to sweep us away like that. Uh, the creed of that particular religion is pretty depressing. Uh, here's Richard Dawkins summing up approvingly now the worldview you get when you kick God out of the picture. It's a quote. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you're not going to find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So, spiritually empty, devoid of purpose, this, this is exactly what we would expect of a worldview without God. So we can agree with Dawkins about that. But it turns out it's actually difficult, if not impossible, to actually live that out. A lot of my colleagues who are atheists, so they, they're uncomfortable with, with that, and they buy into a, a well-meaning philosophical humanism. And it can look very similar to Christian ethics, do unto others, etc. But my question to them is, on what foundation does that morality 
rest? Where does your standard of goodness come from in a, in a universe of blind, pitiless indifference? It looks like the, a bit like the emperor's new clothes, where the emperor wasn't wearing any, but everybody tried to pretend that he did because they didn't want to look bad. Everyone's acting as though there's a real moral fabric to the universe. But if we have rejected God, I don't think any such moral fabric really makes sense. Science has never discovered one, and because of its inherent limits, it never will. So to sum up, science doesn't actually conflict with faith, but rather some scientists, overly enamored with the success of science, have been moved to replace God and to try to get others to do the same. And there are some problems with this. So, okay, enough negativity, right? So how about us as Christians? How should we incorporate science into our overall worldview? Well, of course, we start with God. I mentioned that the universe is not the sort of thing that creates itself. Everyone agrees on this. God, however, is and has always been considered the one sort of thing whose existence doesn't require creation. And we've thought about this, we've thought about God in this way before there was any science of the physical universe at all. We didn't invent God to fix the problem of the universe's existence, as some atheists claim. We had always had this conception of God long before the problem was even articulated. You can't state this issue and its solution better than the writer of Hebrews does in Hebrews 3, 4. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. It's as simple as that. And this is why we can say with David in Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So now we have God as creator and sustainer of everything in the universe. Now, in the words of the early scientist Francis Bacon, since we have both the Bible and creation as testaments to God, we can see these as two books, the book of God's word and the book of God's works. The book of God's works is, is creation. And from this, we can see aspects of God in the same way that we see aspects of an artist by looking at a painting or a sculpture. So, In the words of Paul in Romans 1.20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So this is where we plug in science. Science is the way we study the produce of God's eternal power and divine nature. For a Christian, science is the examination of things that have been made, what they are and how they work. It's a worshipful act because it's looking into things that God has made with love and wonder and a quest for understanding. Science is the use of faculties of reason and observation that God gave us uniquely as human beings to discover things about his creation. Now, our powers are fallible, and in this, as in all things, we see through a glass darkly, but science is a godly pursuit. And every new discovery in the natural world can enrich our understanding and appreciation of God as creator and sustainer. And this is because God loves and is proud of his creation, this universe. It's injured by our fall into sin, but even after the fall, God is clear that it's still very special to him. We can read extended odes to the beauty and wonder of God's creation in Job 38 to 42, for instance, in one of the longest Psalms, Psalm 104. 
And if you want to know more about creation, Job 12, 7 to 8 tells us exactly what to do. Ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you. This is exactly what science does. We're told in 1 Kings 4 that Solomon's wisdom included knowledge about nature. Quote, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. In fact, the very first, God, very first command that God gave to Adam when he created him in the Genesis 2 account is to find all the organisms that God was creating and name them. And naming in the Hebrew conception is a powerful notion. It's getting at the essence of something. Now, God, of course, knows all his creatures, but we still don't. We're still in the process of fulfilling that command to Adam today. Um, when the scientist J.B.S. Haldane was asked what he learned about God from his biological studies about 80 years ago, he didn't skip a beat. He answered, he has an inordinate fondness for beetles. That's what he learned. That's what the science taught him about God. And we have discovered 350,000 kinds of beetles, and there are millions more that are not yet described, making about 25% of all animal species. April, my wife, once worked in a natural history museum and that would send scientists to Africa to collect insects from trees, and it was her job to put them into their respective groups when the explorers came back. And on average, one in every four insects they brought back was new to science, had never been described, and had no name. So, we should love the things that God loves. So, he loves goodness, we should love goodness. He loves his creation, we should love it. Every new discovery of a galaxy, or a bacterium, or a subatomic atomic particle is a new page in the book of God's works. And since science is the way that we find things out about creation, I think that we should cultivate an interest in science for all its faults, its fallible warts, and have a healthy respect for it. But of course, the questions that science answers, or the, science, uh, the questions that science asks, aren't as important as the ones that our faith answers. The biggest truths will always be the ones that we can't answer without God, and I love that God designed things that way. But the little things that we can investigate with science can be wonderful too. Uh, they can broaden and fill out our understanding of what it means for God to be creator and sustainer of the universe. Everything we discover is a bit of God's wisdom or God's artistry. And sometimes the results of science are important for us in a very practical way as Christians. What is a Christian perspective on alcohol, cannabis, caffeine, genetically modified foods, taking hormones like melatonin, testosterone, estrogen? What is good for us in terms of diet and exercise and other lifestyle issues? How can we respect our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit in relation to all of these things? What should we think about climate change, pollution, invasive species, stem cell research, euthanasia, whole host of issues? Understanding the science of these things could help us in our quest to develop a careful, godly, Christian perspective on these. And I think we need more Christians not only understanding bits of science, but actually doing science. We've often stayed away from it. I was uh, encouraged to stay away from it myself. 
partly because of some vocal representatives of science who are very unfriendly to faith. But that turns out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, though, doesn't it? I mean, how circular it is for us Christians to avoid contributing to the understanding of the natural world and then turn around and complain that science seems like a rather atheistic enterprise. Instead, we should follow Psalm 111.2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. We should delight in them and study them. Let's not leave the love and the fascination and investigation of God's creation to those who don't even recognize it as God's creation. Let's pray.